Hey, welcome back to The Bill Bennett Show. It's the podcast that translates President Trump. We take an honest look at the current administration. We expose the existential threats to America. I don't think he is, Trump, and I don't think COVID-19 is. But you've heard me on that before. You'll hear hear me a little more today. Joining us is Ralph Reed. He's the chairman and CEO of Century Strategies and the founder and chairman of the Faith and Freedom Coalition. Been around a long time. He's like Dick Clark. He doesn't age. Always looks the same. He's also uh, was the founding executive director of the Christian Coalition. Uh, he has a new book titled Forgotten Country, The Christian Case for Trump. We're going to talk to him about the books. It's very interesting because it's a, the best narrative I have found of the 2016 campaign. And we'll talk about that. Uh, some interesting things in the news. Um, you will see in the uh, interview with Ralph Reed, and you will hear that he's, uh, he points out that uh, on many occasions, Donald Trump says things that nobody knew he was going to say. His staff, his campaign manager, and Ralph recalls this debate with Hillary Clinton where he said things that made Ralph and his wife think he would surely win election. I'm sure made liberals think he would surely lose when he said, in effect, he would reverse Roe v. Wade. He would appoint pro-life judges. But he has this habit of doing it. He did it again yesterday. Uh, did you notice that, Claude, in the middle of meeting? I did not. Well, yeah, in the middle of meeting, he was talking about this, and there was this very good news story about something. This Moderna company, which is a drug company, coming up with something that looks very promising in terms of a vaccine. And that was a big story. And, you know, this is one of the companies that he's kind of pushed in his warp speed effort to get a vaccine. But then he stepped on the story by saying, yeah, I'm taking care of myself. I'm taking uh, hydroxychloroquine. Yeah, Yeah, I'm taking it. Yeah. How long have you been taking? About a week and a half. (laughs) This this controversial, you know, drug, which he was urging on people earlier. And then the research, Mm -hmm. a lot of research supports it. Uh, Some doesn't. But the press was shocked. Nobody knew this. None of his handlers or advisors, I think, knew he was going to say this. But that's just typical Trump. Mm-hmm. It's okay. They're making a big deal out of it. But, I mean, the point is, talk to your doctor. Dr. Siegel was on Fox this morning, and he said, be fine for some people. Other people, no. But uh, ask your doctor. And if your doctor recommends it, fine. The president talked to his doctor, White House doctor. But uh, that's one of the big news items this morning. Other items is uh, June is busting out all over in May. That's a song from Carousel, Junior's Bustillo. American people are going out. They want to go out. Want to get out of their house. Mm-hmm. Want to hit the beach, hit the golf course like you did. Yes, like Leave. I did. Also took Manny to the golf course. And he, you know, we walked around, played nine holes. The American people want to get out. So the, the Fox kind of focused, magnified the situation at this Attilus gym in New Jersey, Belmore, New Jersey. I have a question or two about it. The audience might be able to help me with. But you got that little brief video. I think, I think people will get it from... Uh, by the audio. We are and we're only here for everybody's safety today. We plan for the worst, hope for the best, and it seems like that's what we have out here today. Normally, you are all in violation of the executive order. On that note, on that note, have a good day. Everybody be safe. All right, so let me explain. A crowd noise. So the, the guy who owns the Attila's gym out there and a crowd gathers and want to go in the gym or at least support him. Police come and uh, some nervousness. You can see the apprehension. Uh, officer starts to speak and announces that they're in violation of the governor's rule. It's okay. And uh, with that, have a nice day. So it's kind of like, well, there you go. Now there is a follow-up. There was a summons. There was a ticket. The owner got a ticket. 
I don't know what the amount is that would have to be paid, but I know you could do six months in prison. So this story's not over yet. The cop obviously didn't want any confrontation. They don't want to have confrontations with citizens who are going out doing normal everyday things, you know, they're not robbing anyone. Mm-hmm. But we'll see what happens when these things go to court. You know, if you take the case in Texas, that woman who ran a beauty parlor and the judge told her she, you know, if she apologized, he'd waive it. But if she wouldn't, she said, no, I'm not going to apologize for trying to feed my kids. We're going to see these incidents like this all around the country. Uh, and then you got the situation in Wisconsin, very liberal governor, Tony Evers, and he's you know, got serious lockdown orders, as a lot of these Democrats do. And um, it really is a kind of red-blue divide. The red states are much more eager to open up uh, and than, than a lot of the blue. Uh, but Wisconsin Supreme Court overruled them. And so, boy, they were at the bars in Wisconsin. I spent a year in Wisconsin. I'll tell you, they like their bars. <laughs> I think they number one or two in the country in liquor consumption, beer consumption. Mm-hmm. So we'll see, but this thing's about to play out. But you'll hear in the interview with Ralph Reed, we both agree that the country is ready to get back to itself. And um, one very interesting case is uh, Georgia, which now more than two weeks ago opened up, and they opened up tattoo parlors and beauty salons. And a lot of criticism, including the president. Mm-hmm said, I think they're making a mistake. Governor Kemp's making a mistake in Georgia. But so far, their numbers are still going down, Claude. I got a friend in California, you know him, but he loves to visit the casinos in Vegas. <laughs> he does. <laughs> but they're not open yet. No, they're not. I said, what are you doing? He said, I'm getting on the road. I said, where are you going? He said, Deadwood, South Dakota. They're all open. They're all open in Deadwood, South Dakota. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> a long trip. He was kidding. But anyway, uh, people miss people miss doing what they've been what they were doing. And they want to do mm-hmm. it. I want to say something uh, on this. I think uh, a great maybe you could put a link up. Uh, this is a Wall Street Journal editorial from yesterday. Uh, should Florida bail out New York? It's a comparison of Florida and New York, and it's quite interesting. The job that's been done in Florida by DeSantis compared to the job that is undone, not done so well uh, by Cuomo, despite the lionization of Cuomo by the media. But uh, it's a comparative look at uh, growth and spending, and uh, you got to give uh, DeSantis good grades on this. Another thing on the, on my mind, as you guys all know, I was the Secretary of Education. Item in the news, just, you know, this might have made a headline, or we not in the times we're in, but... Um, the University of California system, that includes Berkeley, uh, they're going to do SAT, do away with SATs and ACTs, or at huh. least that's a proposal by the, uh, by the president. And uh, it's interesting because it goes against a faculty committee. I would have thought faculty committee would have come out the same way, but faculty committee said, no, we got to have some independent way of measuring what students know because there's so much grade inflation, so much extraneous stuff and essays written by parents and all. We got we got to have the results of the SAT and the ACT. Not that that's the be all and end all, but it does tell you something. And the SAT and the ACTs turn out to be pretty good predictors of how people will do in college and indeed even afterwards. So that's an attempt. To, you know, we saw as soon as the schools closed. To me, it was so quick. It wasn't necessary. They said, "All right, we're doing away with all the tests. All the tests are over." It wasn't necessary to do away with all the tests. You know. Might have found a way to do them online and something. But that's the disposition in a lot of the education profession. Uh, on parents' minds right now in May is because, you know, remember in June, you start seeing these ads for back to school, you know. Mm-hmm. Your kids going back to school. My answer is they should. They should. And most parents think they should. But, of course, a lot of parents are still scared to death because of all these scared to de- death, scare them to death tactics. 
mm-hmm. language. Right. So much gloominess out there. This is the plague. Mm-hmm. And it turned out not to be. And um, kids should go back to school. Turns out, you know, they don't really get this thing and um, virus very much. And there's been all this talk lately about this other thing that looks like Kawasaki disease, but they're not sure this is related to COVID. And mm-hmm. it's about 10 cases, nobody dies. Kids get very sick. It's to be taken seriously. But it's kind of like people, some people are just clutching for more bad news. Can we get some more bad news? When the numbers suggest kids are virtually immune to this, unlike the flu, and they're not effective carriers of it either. You know, that's a great point, because in the podcast you did last week with Dr. Lissier from uh, Canada, he talked about this, about how, you know, there's little, there's there's more proof of kids who have it, but they don't transmit it or transfer it to other people effectively. Uh, and so keeping them away from grandparents or not sending them to school because you're afraid that they may give it to someone, it isn't lining up with the numbers and with the science. Nope, that's right. So we'll see, but boy, a lot going on. Did you see this latest video from Biden's basement? I did not. <laughs> is he still doing videos? Oh, that's weird. I mean, he's got, he's got the birds chirping, which is okay, and then some weird sounds and some phones ringing, and then this guy, this head pops up in his garden, this guy, and I don't know if security or something, but it's just kind of a comedy of errors. It's just not, it's not smooth. Real mm-hmm. debate, real debate among conservatives about whether this – being in hiding in his basement in Delaware is good for him or bad for him. A lot of people think it's the best thing that could happen to him because mm-hmm. <laughs> he's, he's not out there talking in public and making gaffes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right, exactly. I said on TV about a week ago, I said I still think it's close to 50-50 chance he's not the nominee. I, you know, I probably was reaching. I don't know. You know, if they had their druthers do over, I think they'd do over. But Ralph Reed says in the interview coming up, he'll see. There's no way to take it from him. He said if he did, you'd have Siege of Chicago, the uh, the Democrat Convention 68, which was so horrible. Fire and brimstone. Right. So we'll see. But boy, we will keep you up to date on what we think matters. And we'll have good interviews for you. And we thank you for listening. Listening to me and now listen to Ralph. You're listening to The Bill Bennett Show. Bill Bennett Show. So here is Ralph Reed, my friend. I call him a friend. Um, he has been very good to me. I hope I've been helpful to him, maybe occasionally from time to time. Uh, the new book, For God and Country, The Christian Case for Trump, really interesting book. Uh, I found this the most, first half of the book, the most compelling narrative about the 2016 campaign. Kind of blow by blow, events that happened, crises amazing. I want to get into it, but I want to start by saying I had no idea. The book starts for you with a call from Donald Trump. And right. I had no, you can back up the story, but I had no idea. He asked you to run his then planned 2012 campaign. Is that right? Right. I think it got reported once by one of the liberal online news organizations. I can't remember which one it was. I didn't give it to them, but they got it during the campaign. I don't know who from but it hasn't been widely reported. And obviously it kind of ended up being moot anyway, because he ended up not running and I was previously committed to faith and freedom. But uh, the more important point of that story and the others that I relate, I think, Bill, is that, uh, you know, either serendipitously or providentially, depending upon your perspective, uh, I got a chance to get to know and really genuinely like and have a lot of affection for Donald Trump as a friend, which I never would have anticipated. I didn't plan. And certainly at that time, I don't mind admitting at the moment, I 
didn't not only didn't see him becoming president, I didn't see him ultimately running. Yeah. And I relate that in the book too as to why I thought that. Okay. So I was wrong, but I really got to know him and respect him and like him and we became friends and and I was grateful for that once we got to 2015 and he did run because then unlike a lot of people in the faith community and the pro-life community, I not only didn't have any reservations about him, I was convinced that he would be a champion for us. Yeah, I'm back to 2012, you didn't really know him, right? I mean, he called you and asked you to run his possible presidential campaign. Had you met him? Had you shaken well, hands I, like I, you used to do in the old days, shake hands? I, I had spoken to him in early 2011 when he was uh, beginning to put his toe in the water. I, As I relate in the book, I had gotten to know his lovely daughter, Ivanka, and son-in-law, Jared, a year earlier at a conference in Utah. And that was the beginning of me beginning to reassess my view of Donald Trump, because uh, as I say in the book, Bill, I have two beautiful daughters, and they are as charming and gracious and intelligent and poised as Ivanka. I say that, I'm a little biased, they're my daughters. But as I said to my wife after I met Ivanka, you know, you don't raise a daughter like that by accident. And yeah. it, it isn't just as someone who's helped raise two daughters, it isn't just the mother, it's also the father, because uh, a young woman um, experiences the love of a man for the first time through her father. That's right. And, you know, of course, I later, as I got to know Donald Trump and his children, I really was impressed by how close they were and what love there was. So all that to say, he and I became friends. Uh, I liked him. I don't mind telling you, I found him impossible not to like. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, he's he's smart. He knows everybody. He knows a lot about the economy, business, the world. Very sharp guy, engaging, personable, relatable. And so then later, you know, when he was going to run, he asked me if I would be a part of that. I was obviously very honored and flattered, but ultimately he didn't you know, end up running. So You've said a lot of interesting things already. And this book, Forgotten Country, The Christian Case for Trump, is full of these things. It's interesting. The daughters come up as a kind of motif throughout the book, both in the way you just said, as a standard against which or for which you measure someone. So you look at the daughter as a reflection and part of the father. Right, and and the sons, but I got to know Ivanka first. But but what you said is very interesting, because just a little brief anecdote. We have sons, you have daughters, as you know. And Mrs. Bennett, when the the boys are serious or have been serious, looked like getting serious, asks our sons, do they love their father? Because that girl's, that young woman's first impression of who guys are is her father, and said, always marry a girl who loves her dad. I said, I'm glad I married you. You loved your dad because your dad was, you're very forgiving of me, which means <laughs> I benefited from your, I benefited from your dad. Right. But I think it's a, a very important insight. You also talk about your daughters and your wife and women. Again, it's an interesting theme throughout the book in terms of standards and standards of behavior, conduct, and deportment. Right. Go right to, and I, gosh, I forgot how late this was in the campaign, but it was October yeah. of 2016 with the uh, the Billy Bush business. October 7th. Yeah, I mean, this is very, very late. Talk about that. I didn't mean to get to it so quickly, but talk about it because you just spoke so eloquently about family. Yeah. And the shock that you were in a movie theater, if I remember. It was a Friday afternoon. 
I had just gotten off the phone with a major donor who had made a commitment of a final financial pledge that I needed to help fund Faith and Freedom's ground game, where we were knocking on over a million doors and making millions of phone calls and dropping millions of pieces of mail and all that. Very expensive program. So I was done and I was sort of celebrating late on a Friday afternoon. Uh, went to go watch uh, Sully with Tom Hanks and I was in there probably in the first half hour and my cell phone just started buzzing, not ringing because I have it on silent, but just buzzing incessantly. And, you know, I ignored it for the first five buzzes and yeah. <laughs> I thought, is, is, is yeah. my wife trying to get a hold of me? Has somebody died? Yeah. And so I reached down and, and sort of cupped it in the dark theater and looked down and of course, the entire presidential campaign had been turned upside down. And by the way, Bill, I should point out for those who don't do this for a living, that that was the day that early voting began in many battleground states, including Florida. Yeah. So I don't think the leak of this tape, yeah, I don't think the know. timing was accidental. Yeah. And uh, as I record, I watched the video, obviously didn't appreciate the language. What was your first reaction in the movie theater when you when you got to kind of full appreciation of how ugly it was and it was a very ugly? What what did, did you think, oh man, it's, it's ruined, it's over? No. You didn't? I, I didn't. Not for I a second. I didn't think that for a minute. And I did. I, saying I'm smarter than anybody else. I, maybe I was just lucky. But I, when I watched it, and I watched it twice, just to be sure my initial reaction wasn't wrong. What I noticed was that, that Trump was speaking in ways that I considered to be inappropriate, but that Billy Bush was kind of egging him on. Yes. And sort of drawing it out of him. The second thing that I obviously noticed is that he did not think for a minute that that was ever going to be released. It was not, you know, it doesn't make it right, but it was a totally different thing if, if it was surreptitiously picked up on a boom mic. And, and Bill, I've worked for plenty of other candidates who said things they shouldn't that got picked up by a stray mic. And sure. I judge that very differently. Doesn't, doesn't make it right, but I judge it differently. The third thing I noticed was that it was 11 years old. And I had been with Trump many times backstage, including in the presence of women. And I saw him as a perfect gentleman. And by the way, I saw many young, attractive women around him, yeah. like Pope Hicks, who was his press secretary, with whom both he and she were total professionals. And he was a complete gentleman and very supportive of her professionally. Yeah. And then the last thing I noticed, and I talk about this in the book, is that when he got off the bus to meet this young model for all of the inappropriate language, he extended his hand and arm out at arm's length to shake the young woman's hand. And it was Billy Bush who said, aren't you going to give the Donald a hug? He did not hug the woman. He acted as a gentleman, and when she leaned in to hug him, what did Donald Trump say? As far as I know, I'm the only one who ever noticed this. He said, Melania says this is okay. Yeah, and that's a way so of saying. He mentioned the name of his wife as a marker to this attractive young model, and I noticed that. It jumped right off the video at me. And while I've never defended the language, and I don't today, and I said it was inappropriate and offensive, I also pointed out, Bill, at the time that compared to priority 
moral issues like the sanctity of innocent human life, including the unborn, an open vacancy on the Supreme Court that he or Hillary would fill, support for the state of Israel, support for religious freedom, and other things that I consider to be moral issues. I was never dismissive of the video, but I argued at the time, and ultimately turned out to be correct, that it would rank very low on the priorities of voters of faith once they went into the voting booth. Well, you were smart, uh, and you were, yeah, you were smarter than a lot of people, including me. Uh, we're talking to Ralph Reed. The book is uh, fascinating. It's a great read, particularly the parts I love the best for the for this 2016 um election uh, and campaign, uh, Forgotten Country, the Christian Case for Trump, uh, which Ralph is in the process of making. But I will I will confess to you, uh, you were smarter than I. When I heard it and saw it, I said, that's it. I didn't say it for me, you know. Um, right. I Before I was blessed enough to meet Elaine and be married now 37 years, my theme song was looking for love in all the wrong places. You know, I, you know, I, not all things of which I'm proud up till the age of 36, but it didn't, it didn't kill it for me. But I thought, I don't think, I don't think he can be forgiven for this. I don't think people can say, hear this and say, I'm still going to vote for him. You knew what was in the mind of what turned out to be, if I read the book correctly, more than half of the people who supported Donald Trump for president, Christian evangelicals. Correct. And that is correct. And that this would not, you did not think this would move many of them off the dime of support. No. And this is the large argument, which I want you to get to. Yeah. And I, and, and not to dwell too much on, on the Access Hollywood tape, but I think, you know. It, well, just the whole genre. Just the yeah, whole, just the whole genre. I, I, I think that it's what historians, Bill, refer to as a counterfactual. Yeah. We'll, we'll never know. But I think if that videotape had been 11 days old instead of 11 years old, you know, maybe it would have been different. I think certainly the fact that it was 11 years old, I think, mattered uh, to all voters, uh, but particularly to voters of faith. And, and I said at the time that if I believed that Donald Trump was today uh, who he was 11 years ago, uh, I don't know that I would have supported him, but I, I knew him and I didn't believe that. But I think the larger question uh, that you're getting at I think. And the reason really why I wrote the book, yep. I didn't write the book primarily to defend Donald Trump, although I do plenty of that. In fact, I have a 30-page appendix in the book detailing <laughs> all of his achievements and accomplishments, and I'm proud to be his friend and a strong supporter. Appendix A, yeah. it's really, uh, the book is worth getting just for Appendix A. That list of all those things is quite Yeah, well, thank you. Uh, we worked hard on that, and, and it uh, the reader is also guided to a website. We keep that list refreshed on a weekly basis. But the reason why I wrote the book, Bill, was because as a, uh, as a person of faith myself, I felt that uh, Christians had been unfairly maligned, criticized, pilloried, caricatured, and smeared ever since they made that decision to back Donald Trump. They've been accused of being hypocrites. They've been called spiritual frauds. They've been accused of selling out their faith and the gospel for 30 pieces of silver and access to power. And whatever one thinks of Donald Trump, and I've said that I'm a friend and admire him and respect him, whatever you think of him, to say that about them, and I felt it was important to tell the story that these were people who loved God, who took their faith very seriously, 
It's the most important thing in their lives. And they also take seriously their role as citizens. And they faced a binary choice yep. between two imperfect candidates, one of whom and Donald Trump pledged to work with them, give them a voice in society again, and advance things that I believe are moral goods. And then they had another candidate who dismissed them as deplorable yeah, yeah. and irredeemable yeah. and who, in my view, and I think in their view, stood for things that advanced grave moral evils. And I think that we're called as citizens, as Ronald Reagan said, the man you worked for, in his famous address to the National Association of Evangelicals in 1983, he said, we are called by our God to fight with all our might to resist evil and to advance good. And that's why they decided to support Trump. They were right to do so, not only politically, they were right to do so morally. I agree. In some ways, having that choice was yeah. easier, or just going back to the narrative, when the choice was between Donald Trump and Hillary, then early on, or at least there was an awful lot of wrestling with the idea of Donald Trump as the nominee. Before he became the nominee, you recount a number of meetings with your colleagues, many evangelicals saying, anybody but Trump, or it'll never be. Or yeah. you know, I, oh, yeah. I think you said, you know, I was kind of, kind of interested in Rubio, you know, and, you know, I, I came to Trump later. I wasn't an original. My son, our oldest right. son was, he was there right from the beginning. But there was some persuading to do before he became the nominee of, of the community, which you're so close. Oh, yeah. And, yeah. and you know, I, I recount all that in the book because, again, I think a smear and a lie of the media and of critics of the Christian community has been that they were basically sellouts. Yeah. And I point out the exact opposite. I mean, not only did two-thirds of self-identified evangelicals, Bill, vote for somebody else in the primaries, uh, mostly, you know, a Ted Cruz or a Rubio or a Mike Huckabee or right. Rex Santorum, but I also point out that, that many of them, even after Trump became the nominee, yeah. uh, or at least the presumptive nominee, weren't sure whether they'd vote for him or not. And I think, I argue in the book, there were three inflection points that made the whole thing shift. The first was in May of 2016 when Trump released the list of jurists that he said he would fill the Scalia vacancy with. That's the first time and only time in American history that that's happened. Yep. When a presidential candidate said, if you elect me, I'm going to fill this vacancy. By the way, Bill, the last time there was a vacancy on the Supreme Court on Election Day that decided the philosophical balance of the court was November of 1860. That's how critical this was. I argue yeah. the second inflection point was when he selected Mike Pence to be his running mate. And I think that reassured and telegraphed to a lot of people, conservatives as well as those of faith, hey, you know, he may really mean this. Uh, let, me interrupt, let me interrupt you a second. Flat, yeah. tire, flat tire on the airplane, right? Right. I mean, Mike Pence isn't the guy maybe if there's no flat tire on the airplane. Just tell that story quickly, if you will. Yeah, real quickly, I recounted in the book, it's been recounted elsewhere, uh, that uh, Trump decided, uh, he made the decision to audition the three finalists who were Christie, Gingrich, and Pence by doing events with them to see how they played with an audience. And so he went to Indiana to do this event with Pence. He was supposed to fly out after uh, dinner. And when they 
when they were having dinner, they got a call saying, you got a flat tire on the plane. We don't have the spare. We need to have one flown in. You're spending the night. And the result was that, that the, then the remaining children, and I think, uh, Bill, that it was Eric who was with him in Indianapolis. And then I think Ivanka and Eric then flew in and they all had brunch with the Pences at the mansion served by the Pences. Yeah. And the children signed off. And uh, it's a great story. Yeah, it is a great uh, the story. The vice president told me about it personally. Charming story. I think, I think that the Pence selection, Bill, um, in many ways presaged the audacious and ambitiously conservative yeah. and reformist agenda of this president. If, if you knew Mike Pence, and I certainly did, I know you did. Yeah. And then the third inflection point, I argue, came in the third and final debate when Chris Wallace asked about late-term abortion and Hillary Clinton famously gave the usual Planned Parenthood talking points and Donald Trump turned to her and said, she just said that she's okay with ripping the baby from its mother's womb moments before it's born. Maybe she's okay with that. I am not okay with that. And I think that those three moments are what caused the faith community to cascade over in the record numbers that it did. You know, it's a, a great summary. I believe your wife, Joanne, Joanne, whom I know and love, said at that point to you, you were watching together, I think he's just, just won the presidency, right? Yes, she um, did. And jo Joanne, by the way, was like your son. She was... Uh, in early. Oh, yeah. She, yeah. she saw it very early. She's very smart, very capable. Yes, she is. Um, the, the thing that amazed me in reading this again, and again, you tell it so well in the book, is in that debate, you know... Chris, you, you talk about Chris Wallace asked him a question directly and was kind of stymied by the fact that he answered it directly. Yeah. So would you reverse Roe v. Wade? And he said, yes, I would. I would appoint a judge who would reverse it and send it back to the states. I mean, had we ever heard that before? I know about the list of judges being unprecedented, but, but a direct answer rather than some wobbly wiggly thing. He said, yeah, yeah, you bet. That's what I'm after. Yeah. So I am sure there were people uh, you know, the, 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 the Joannes married to people on the left who heard that and said, tonight we won with that answer. But they were wrong. But I mean, he answered it directly, didn't he? I, I think, Bill, it's, it's really a, a tale stranger than fiction. You yeah. know, I, I wrote some political novels earlier. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, I'm biased, but I think they were pretty good. But uh, nothing that you've ever read in fiction is more amazing than this story because, and I, I recount in the book that I later talked to Kellyanne Conway, who's a good friend of both of us. And I asked Kellyanne, I said, by the way, I said, did you know he was gonna say that? And really? Kellyanne just smiled real big and she said, Ralph, absolutely not. She said, we, knew, we knew the question was coming. We'd done two debates and abortion hadn't come up. Yeah. So we all, when we were prepping, we said, look, you know, Mr. Trump, this is gonna come up. And we went through the answers. She said that answer was not scripted. It was not rehearsed. That came straight out of his heart. And you're right. When, when he said that about ripping the baby from its mother's womb, Wallace then said, so you're telling me you would appoint Supreme Court justices that would overturn Roe? And he said, well, look, Chris, what I'm telling you is I'm going to appoint pro-life judges. Yeah. 
And so I think if I appoint pro-life judges, I think that's sort of going to naturally happen. Yep. And then it will go back to the states and the right. states will decide it. I mean, it looked like he it looked like he had literally just clocked Chris Wallace. I mean, he didn't even know what to say right. uh, because no presidential right. candidate would ever say that. But Donald Trump Amazing. did, and it's a big reason why he won. Amazing. Again, the book, For God and Country, The Christian Case for Trump. We just have you a few more minutes. I want to just turn to the future because we are now in the middle. Is this the middle or is this late? for the 2020 race. It's pretty late. Is it true, by the way, that late spring and early summer was when most people make a decision about who they're going to vote for? Uh, well, there, there are early, mid, and late deciders, uh, and you get different views from different political scientists and political strategists as to which is most decisive. But I think the general consensus, and it's one that I agree with, is that I, as much as late deciders are important, in general, uh, midterm elections are decided after Labor Day, and presidential elections historically are decided before Labor Day. Okay. It's, it's during this interregnum, this period between the nominees being settled and Labor Day. It's that period when these elections are won and lost. All right. Two, two, two more questions about that, and then I want to ask you something else. Um, are you sure Biden will be the nominee? I'm not. Well, after 2016, Bill, I'm not 100% confident of anything anymore. But I, I just don't see how you deny him the nomination because for all of his flaws and weaknesses, here's the problem. If, yeah. if you get to the convention in Milwaukee as the Democratic Party and you're not going to have the guy who won the most votes and won the most primaries and delegates be the nominee, then, then who do you give it to? And I believe if you give it to anybody other than Bernie Sanders, who came in second not once but twice, and who represents the true grassroots and ideological center of gravity of the party, I think you end up with a convention in flames, and I think you've got Chicago 68 in Milwaukee. I think there'll be riots. So I, they may not want to, but I think they're stuck with him, and I think he'll be the nominee. Is this going to be harder for Trump than 2016 or easier? What do you think? You know, my general view, just strategically, without trying to be a pundit or in the prediction business, which I'm not, is I think it'll be about the same race and it's a reprise of 2016. And in many ways, I would argue it's just a continuation of a campaign that never ended. Yeah. I, I think the map will be roughly similar. Uh, I think like 2016, it'll be a choice election. And I think People will weigh Biden's weaknesses, flaws, and vulnerabilities and his running mate against Trump's accomplishments and their own issues with him. And I think Trump will prevail in a very close and highly competitive and hard-fought campaign. That's my yeah. own view. The alignment of the states will look pretty much the same. I think it's a very similar map. I think that, look, I worked on the Bush campaigns in 00 and 04, meaning Bush 43, and our 04 map was the same map we had in 00. We were in Florida, Ohio, Wisconsin, Iowa. And I think for Trump, and I'm, uh, uh, you know, I'm on the coalitions for the campaign in my personal capacity, I think we're going to be right back to Florida, North Carolina, um, Wisconsin, Michigan, Pennsylvania, and then maybe Colorado and Minnesota. Last thing, um, do you agree with the people who are saying this will mostly be about, I, I agree, absolutely, it's, it's a continuation, it's the same thing, but this COVID-19, to what degree does it 
play a very prominent role uh, in 2020. I tend to think that Trump will be judged more by how we come out of COVID-19 than he will be judged solely by how he handled COVID-19. I personally believe he did an outstanding job and the administration saved hundreds of thousands of lives by the travel ban in China, the travel ban of the EU, and other things that he did. But in the end, when voters are deciding in late summer and early fall, I think it's going to be, are we coming out of it economically and financially? And does it look like we're moving towards both therapeutics and a vaccine to make sure that it doesn't happen again? And I think the economy will weigh more than the pandemic. Uh, I think that Trump turned this economy around once. I think he can do it again. I think that's why it'll be a choice. He'll put his, his economic record up against the Obama-Biden record. And I think that's a message and a choice that he can win. Something stirring now. I mean, it's, it's very interesting to me. You know, the American people don't like their freedom taken away for very long. But there's something else about it. The American people don't like to be gloomy very long. You know, it's just not in right. them. We're op- we may be theoretical pessimists. That's what I always say. People say, you're an optimist or pessimist. I say, I'm like Isaiah. Theoretical pessimist. It's all wind and ashes in the end. But operationally, I'm an optimist. Yeah, I think right. it's an American attitude. People are, seem to me, ready to go. You know, let's let's go. Let's go back to work. We'll be careful. We'll be thoughtful. But I also think there's a sense, and I don't want to just chisel on my own on my own sculpture here. But you know, there's a sense in which a lot of this I think was really overplayed and overstated. There was this crazy thing about 2.2 million deaths right. coming out of this English professor, and um, and then it turns out, and I can say this without fear of anybody getting angry, that it's truly mostly about old people, people my age. I have a target on my back, underlying conditions and over 70. Uh, not that they, such people aren't important. Of course they're important. Sure. But we're not all in this together in the same way. We all don't have the same amount of skin in the game. Because uh, really, unlike the flu, uh, it affects people old age uh, much more, much more dramatic. I had, I had no idea, but I was following Minnesota. Our friends at Powerline, you know, the blog at Powerline. Mm-hmm. And, you know, 80% of the deaths in Minnesota were nursing home, and the average age of death was 82. Uh, not to say that's nothing. Wow. Of course, it's, you know, horrible. But, uh, you know, it, it, it puts a different perspective on it when we, when we think of it that way. And I think, you know, this, this whole idea of telling everybody that they were all at the same risk or giving that impression. I think this coming to light, American people are seeing that just, just isn't true. Just isn't true. We'll protect the vulnerable and the elderly, but let us live our lives. But that's a speech. I shouldn't have given a speech. Go ahead. No, I, I think it's very well said. And I, I agree with what you've said. And I think that there have been an awful lot of people uh, who have looked at the models and determined that their underlining underlying assumptions were flawed and off base from the beginning. And I don't mean retrospectively. I mean, at the time that those models uh, were released. And you mentioned Minnesota. Uh, I was talking to a good friend who's looked at the data and dug down deep. And the, the, the median age of death in New York is 80. The median age of death in Massachusetts is 82. And obviously, we, as, as people who are pro-life, as men and women, of faith, we believe that every life is sacred. We don't, we don't uh, value a life of someone who's 82 or 92 any less than we do 
someone who's two or 22. That's not the issue. The issue is that when it comes to policy and when it comes to our approach to the pandemic, we need to move forward to reopen the economy, let people go back to work, let people live lives again while doing what? While protecting the most vulnerable who are those with underlying conditions and those over a certain age. But there is no reason to have someone who's 22 years old, just beginning their life, losing their job, having their business that they work for go under, having their career and life derailed, and then increasing the possibility of chemical dependency, depression, suicide among those of that age cohort. If every life matters, then we need to act accordingly. And I think, by the way, Bill, I just want to say uh, that I, I think you could not be more right about what you said about the American people wanting to get back and being optimistic and being achievers. What the great historian Daniel Borston, what's called the, the go-getters, we want to go out there and get at it. And uh, that's the greatness of America. It's in our DNA. And I think that, uh, you know, you're... You're a guy who worked for Ronald Reagan. I'm a, I'm a Reaganite. Ronald Reagan expressed that as well or better than anybody. I think until Donald Trump came along, he's on to that. He's calling for us to reopen. And, and I think the best is yet to come. Yeah, yeah you remember Morning in America. And, um, I, I, you know, when the president was there with the scientists talking about the numbers and the plague, and I said, okay, you know, he's acknowledging the reality and dealing with the situation. But I like this president right now better. I like this president saying, come on, let's come back. That's who we are, leading us into, you know, back into the light. And it seems to me it's more, it's more natural to him. And for us, yeah, I think the great phrase, that original to me, the American capacity for self-renewal, you know, is, is working. And people are saying, you know, we can handle this. We can go through this uh, and come out. So I, I want to be clear what you said. The, the test for the president is not what happened at the beginning, but how we come out of this and how right. the economy comes out of this and how people's sense of the country, I think, comes out of this. If, if we're all too gloomy, I think we go with the gloomy party, you know. But if we're not, then if we're feeling like it, we're getting our country back, uh, then I think his odds are much, much better. Yeah. Yeah, we're in a little bit of uncharted water in the sense that we know that presidents are judged by the economy. But here we have a situation, we've had, what, 14 recessions since World War II, and we know that presidents who have sought re-election after a recession in their first term generally don't get re-elected. But this is a unicorn, in a sense, politically and historically. This is a case where the economy was voluntarily put on a pause button to save lives and to flatten a curve. And I would argue that as we come out of that and we see the markets and employment and the GDP bounce back, then I be believe it becomes a choice between two records and two sets of policies. And Donald Trump arguing for lower taxes, limited government, unleash that creative capacity for renewal that you're talking about and allow uh, small businessmen and women and people to create jobs and wealth. And on the other side, you're going to have Joe Biden running on a $4 trillion tax increase, AOC and the squad's regulatory agenda, outlaw and ban fracking, cripple the U.S. energy industry, and uh, spend trillions of dollars 
in guaranteed income and free health care for illegal aliens. And I just think when you lay that choice out, I think it's a choice that's pretty clear. Forgotten country, the Christian case for Trump, Ralph Reed. No one could have done it better, and he did it. Thank you, Ralph. Thanks very much. Thanks, Bill. You're listening to The Bill Bennett Show. Stay current on the threat posed by China with our friends at Committee on the Present Danger China. Go to presentdangerchina.org, presentdangerchina.org. That does it for today's show. To catch up on previous episodes of the show, go to thebillbennettshow.com. You can follow me on Twitter at William J. Bennett. You can like me on Facebook. Just search Bill Bennett. Feel free to email the show, everybody. I'd love to hear from you. It's billbennettpodcast at gmail.com. Please uh, share this podcast with your family and friends. We'll catch up next week. 